Welcome to Conservation Cafe. This is a podcast for those of you engaged at the front lines of the conservation and sustainability battles. I'm your host, Hillary Wilkinson. I'm a science communication and stakeholder engagement expert, and this podcast shines a bright spotlight on the battles we are winning, and even more importantly, how they're being won. Thanks for tuning in. And I was one of those people that believed that if I got people outside, showed them the wonders of nature, taught them the intricacies of the water system, for instance, they would instantly be motivated to protect it. On today's episode, we're going to take a quick look back on things that did not work in past conservation and sustainability efforts so that we can all focus our limited time and energy on things that do. So what didn't work? Obviously, the paper production process has led to mass deforestation. The main issue here is that the trees are not being replanted, or if they are being replanted, they will not grow fast enough to replace the trees that are being cut. This is a serious environmental issue because it destroys habitats, disrupts food chains and food webs, is a severe eyesore and indirectly leads to increased carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere. It could also lead to erosion of hillsides with the consequence of flooding. An obvious solution is to recycle these paper products. That's what I refer to as a knowledge bomb, a blast of information aimed at somebody with the intention of trying to change their behavior on a particular topic, let's say stopping smoking or making better food choices or stop using plastic bags. My guest here in the cafe today is Karina Hoyer. Karina is a longtime friend and a former colleague. She served as the executive director of an environmental organization in Bellingham, Washington, called Resources for Sustainable Communities. And Karina and I both recently admitted to each other that we are recovering knowledge bomb droppers. That was Karina you heard at the top of the episode. But in our defense, we came by it honestly. The conservation and sustainability field has a long history of deploying knowledge bombs, usually with almost no effect. And what Karina and I and an increasing number of our colleagues now know, thanks to a growing body of social science literature, is that the old adage, knowledge is power, needs a facelift. Because knowledge isn't all that powerful, especially when it comes to getting people to take the kinds of actions that are needed to address the world's environmental problems. So what facelift is needed? If knowledge bombs don't work, what does? To try to answer that question, let's turn over to Karina. Krita has now hung her own shingle called Krina Hoyer Consulting, and she also has a fantastic podcast called Krina and Kirsten Get to Work. Welcome to Conservation Cafe, Krina. Oh, thanks for having me, Hillary. I'm so excited to be here. Well, it's great to have a fellow podcaster, somebody I can learn a lot from. I want to start by just quoting something to you from your own website for Krina Hoyer Consulting, which is, I help leaders do their jobs solve their problems, and get along with each other. And uh-huh. <laughs> I was wondering, which, who doesn't need that? Um, I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit more about the work you're currently doing, including your podcast, if you'd like. Yeah. So for about the last three years, I have really been doing exactly that, working directly with leaders and leadership teams to do their jobs, 
and get along with each other or actually figure out what their jobs are, then do them and get along with each other. That's what I do, focusing mostly on women. And my podcast is an extension of that, really just digging into the experience of being a working woman and all of the challenges and glories that come along with it. Well, I'm so happy you're doing that work in the world. I commend you for taking that brave step into consulting. It's not easy. Well, I have to thank you for sitting down with me when I was getting ready to make the leap. You were a great inspiration for me and kind of helped me understand what the what the path ahead of me was. So thanks. Well, you're very welcome. Well, thanks for being here. And as we've discussed, the theme of the episode today is about kind of the evolution in conservation and sustainability. You and I have talked kind of at length about how we've seen the field evolve over the years. I was very struck by some of your insights about that. And uh, I just wanted to share with you that in preparation for today's interview, I did a little Googling just to kind of see what was out there in the academic literature about the conservation movement, the environmental movement, kind of where it was and where it is today. And I was very struck by the plethora of headlines that said things like, why the global environmental movement is failing, or environmental failure, a case for a new green politics. So I want to start by reading you a short clip from one of these articles that I saw. And this particular article was published in the journal Yale 360, which is Yale School of Environment's journal. And it was back in 2008. And here's the clip. A specter is haunting American environmentalism, the specter of failure. All of us who have been part of the environmental movement in the U.S. must now face up to a deeply troubling paradox. Our environmental organizations have grown in strength and sophistication, but the environment has continued to go downhill to the point that the prospect of a ruined planet is now very real. How could this have happened? <laughs> Yikes. I know. That's a little intense. Given your extensive experience at the helm of a very front-running environmental organization in Bellingham, I was wondering if you could reflect on that quote that I just shared with you. The first thing I want to do is reflect on how harsh that statement is, and yet somewhat true in my experience, that despite all of our best, quote-unquote, best efforts, we still have climate change threatening the planet. We have water quality issues. We have air quality issues, etc. It is a harsh reality. And I would say, from my experience, there are multiple reasons, and clearly I'm no expert, but one, solutions that we have implemented or tried to implement did not necessarily match the problem. They were not scaled to the problem. Two, I think we approached conservation or sustainability or environmentalism from a very patriarchal place. This place that relied on education as one of the fundamental sort of tenets. If you are educated, then you will change your behavior. And frankly, we know that that doesn't work. But we spent so much time focusing on teaching people the quote unquote right way. We spent a lot of time teaching people what's right and what's real, focusing on science and education, and we ignored the very things that dictate behavior, like values. So educating somebody just changes what they know. That's the end result, is that you know more, or what you know is different. But that doesn't translate into 
behavior change. And so when I started in the environmental movement, I actually have a degree in environmental education. I have a Bachelor of Science in environmental education. And I was one of those people that believed that if I got people outside, showed them the wonders of nature, taught them the intricacies of the water system, for instance, they would instantly be motivated to protect it. And I ignored the fact that that was a very white-centric approach. I never learned how to meet people where they were at in their own knowledge or in their own understanding. And we didn't focus on the very bedrock of their behaviors that, frankly, you know, still need to change. Thank you, Karina. I think that's very insightful and interesting. And I actually have a couple questions to follow up on that. One is you mentioned this idea of like educating people and thinking that once they understand something, they'll change their practices or behavior accordingly. And I'm, I'm assuming that you're kind of indicating that that didn't really work specifically in the environmental movement. And do you have any specific examples in your own work of where you saw that negative result happen. Yeah, and I'm not sure I would say negative result, but really the result wasn't scaled to the problems we were trying to fix. And so the organization that I ran, I started working at right out of college, and I was my job was to educate people about how to use the recycling system. And interestingly, our program was built around some work that our predecessors had done to to recognize that this brand new system, this brand new radical idea that your garbage doesn't need to go in the trash can, but rather can be turned into something new, was only going to be successful if people understood the benefits of it and understood how to use the system. And so my job was to travel around our county and bring recycling bins into classrooms and try to do two things, motivate people to use this system and help them understand if they wanted to use the system, because why wouldn't they? They, after spending 45 minutes with me, they're going to, of course, they're going to want to recycle. So teaching them how to do it. That is one of the longest running programs in our community. And our recycling rates have stagnated or fallen over the course of this program. That's a perfect example of how something so very simple, like taking a bottle and putting it into a bin instead of into your garbage can, isn't being changed simply by making something available and teaching people the importance of it and teaching them how to do it. I also want to pick up on something you mentioned. You said that the approach of just sharing knowledge, sharing information was patriarchal. And I just wanted to add, I also think it's a little patronizing. I was wondering if you could speak more about well, that. Well, it's it's sort of, I think I alluded to that uh, a couple of minutes ago, too, that it completely eliminates anyone's personal experiences, right? I know best. I'm going to teach you what I know, and you're going to take this preferred path. You're going to be changing your behavior in this way. When, in fact, there's so much knowledge in our communities that we could be tapping into. And there's this expectation around that kind of behavior, around that that very thing of educating so that you'll do these very right things that just assumes, like I said, it's patronizing. It assumes I know better. I know better than you and your behavior is less than. So I'm going to read to you one more quote that I want to kind of use to spark our next dialogue. And it's another quote from a Yale Climate Connections journal. And it's actually a recent one. It was written in March of this year, 2021. And it kind of speaks to some of the things you just said about just kind of dropping knowledge, expecting people to kind of jump in line and Mm -hmm. do what you think that Mm -hmm. they should do. 
So here's the quote. For years, we thought facts and outrage changed minds in ways we now know they don't. We need to explore reliable new ways to speak, listen, and connect in the face of environmental disinformation and polarization. Mm-hmm. Hear, hear. Yeah, hear, hear. I love that quote. And I wanted to use it to kind of help us have this dialogue. Because when I look at this quote, I think, yeah, like some of this stuff that's happened in the past, this patronizing, patriarchal kind of approach, not just to environmental issues, to public health issues. I mean, look at the masking issue. It's bigger than the environmental movement, right? And we're now being told and we now are beginning to understand that that's a kind of a patronizing from the ivory tower approach and that perhaps a more constructive, effective way of going about getting people to understand and potentially change behavior is to actually listen to what they have to say, speak to them in a way that's respectful and they're being heard, connecting with them on a real human level, that maybe those are ways to approach things. So I was just wondering if you could sort of reflect on this quote too. Yeah, I loved hearing that. In fact, when I think about environmentalism, I think, or conservation or sustainability, we're trying to accomplish these audacious goals. We're trying to reverse climate change. We're trying to protect our drinking water. We're trying to ensure that our children have fresh air to breathe. We're not going to achieve any of them without a groundswell of people who are similarly motivated to achieve them. We don't build this kind of movement. We don't build support by wagging our fingers and telling you what to do. You know, we do it by, like you said, meeting people where they're at, hearing their priorities, hearing what they care about, and working in tandem, working collectively. You know, I had great success doing exactly that in the organization that I used to run. An organization that had claimed publicly to never, ever, ever take on, you know, never use political tools to achieve goals, never ask my predecessor, one of my predecessors had written an op-ed or something in one of the newsletters that said, we'll never ask you to write your congressperson and demand these changes. You know, we believe the fundamental way to change behavior to impact our goals is through education. And 25 years later, after having me run the place for a while and some really tremendous people on the board and on the staff, we completely shifted our approach away from education towards this much more movement building with a much larger tent. Turns out the tent gets really, really big when you start asking people to join you and giving them tools that match their passion and their skill set. So you talked about being at resources and predecessors relying on education as their kind of key approach, but then there was a shift. Can you speak a little bit more about that shift? How did you as the ED come to believe that that shift was necessary? And then how did you make it happen? Well, I think 
having worked in conservation before taking on this leadership role, I had felt like everything we were doing was such a heavy lift. In addition to education, we also engaged in policy and we reviewed documents and made comments, etc. Every time we had to talk to a politician or every time we tried to host a meeting or get our community involved in the issues that we cared about, five or 10 people would show up. And so it felt like we were trying to put out a forest fire with squirt guns, you know, and we were this just like righteous environmentalists in a lot of ways who knew better, who were trying to sort of change things. But it was all very, very small, very small scale. And the problems kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I saw two different things that sort of woke me up. One was the power of messaging, the power of saying the right things to the right group of people, and having the messengers be someone other than us. I want to pause here for a moment and reflect on something Karina just shared, which has to do with the power of messaging. And if you will recall, episode two of Conservation Cafe called Parlevu Science is specifically about how to create an effective message using a very cool tool called the Message Box. So if you haven't listened to that, I would really encourage you to do it. I also want to just note that Krina noted that her organization pivoted away from this knowledge bomb-dropping approach towards a very specific campaign that grew a much bigger tent And they, in fact, ended up growing their membership base from hundreds of members to well over 4,000 members. And they did it because of growing this bigger tent and creating messages that were really specific to audiences. So we built a huge tent and we threw our egos aside and we started knocking on doors. We employed traditional, like political techniques canvassing. We made friends with anyone and everyone who agreed with us. We didn't try to control the messages or the, or the messaging. We put our sharp elbows down and said, if you agree that this goal is important, then we want you and we want to work with you. That's so interesting. And it speaks so much to the kind of work that I do in the world, which is kind of the engagement and how do you work across a broad, diverse spectrum of people on challenging issues. Well, with that, I think I'm going to just thank you, Karina Hoyer, for participating in Conservation Cafe. Your insights, your experiences have been just invaluable. I so appreciate you sharing them with me, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure, Hillary. A couple quick takeaways from today's episode. Number one, Knowledge may be power, but it does not necessarily translate into action. Successful conservationists use what social scientists refer to as norm messaging. So for example, if you're trying to get a group of students to eat more vegetables, instead of saying to them, hey kids, eating more vegetables is good for your health, you'd be much more effective if you said something like, hey kids, did you know that your fellow students here at X school eat more vegetables than you think? In fact, on average, they eat three portions a day. In other words, you need to make the thing you want people to do the norm, the thing that others in their peer group are also doing. So educating somebody just changes what they know. That's the end result, is that you know more or what you know is different. 
but that doesn't translate into behavior change. Takeaway number two is that successful conservation and sustainability efforts are increasingly dependent on bringing in more diverse voices and perspectives. So building a bigger tent, bringing in people with different areas of expertise, different backgrounds, different ways of thinking about things, people different from you, they're the key. And granted, this is difficult. More cooks in the kitchen usually is a little more challenging, but it is absolutely crucial. So because it's challenging but crucial, I'm going to make it the focus of a future episode. So stay tuned for that one. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Conservation Cafe. You can find more information, including links to resources mentioned during the episode, at our website, conservationcafe.org. This podcast is a production of Veda Environmental, which connects the dots between science, policy, and people. I'd like to thank my Veda crew, Sarah Brace, Marie Roethlisberger, and Melanie Del Rosario. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.